Come on. Welcome to Lifeblood. This is George G, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful Gil Baumgarten. Gil, are you ready to do this? Yes, sir. All right, let's 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 go. Gil is the president of Segment Wealth Management. He is a fiduciary financial advisor. He's the author of Foolish. I'm excited to have you on. Gil, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Well, I uh, married, got uh, three grown kids, two little granddaughters that live in Fort Worth. I uh, live in Houston and uh, been married to my lovely wife for 34 years. And, um, you know, just uh, that's that's what I do. I was in the brokerage business for 25 years and uh, started out on my own with my own fiduciary business 11 years ago. And so that's, uh, that's what we do is give advice to people about how money works and how they think about it, and we try to help them uh, optimize that for themselves. Nice. What was the motivator from moving away from brokerage to opening up your own fiduciary financial advisory practice? Uh, I always perceived that I was hired by clients to advocate for them, and in the brokerage world, that's very difficult to do. Uh, The firm, the firms and, and the rules behind the firms support them doing things behind the scenes that siphon money uh, from clients in very dark corners of that relationship. And the more you understand about the business and the stronger you are about your opinion in doing what's right for the client, the more difficult it is to exist in a system like that. And my, the firms that I work for are some of the largest in the business, and they tolerated me because I had a big practice. And I always felt that I had a big practice because people trusted me. Um, so it was just my way of doing things and their way of doing things were in a little bit of conflict. And so I decided I had to register differently, which would force me to be a fiduciary, which was the role I was always trying to get into in the brokerage business. And they wanted me to steer clear of it. So that's kind of what, what led to that. Got it. It is, a. Sometimes, Gil, I'm, I'm I'm sympathetic to huge companies, but then at the same time, I'm not at all because I think that now that we, it seems like people do know, and when I say people, people that are in the industry know that there is a better way to do it, and that's the path that you've taken. Um, do you feel like the general investing public is is starting to starting to catch up with the the problem of siphoning money away from clients and fees and expenses and all that? Yes, but people are willfully ignorant. Um, they're not, not that they're uneducated. They, I think in many cases they just don't want to know. Hmm. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they have a relationship with somebody whom they like. They may have social interaction with that person. And that broker's involvement in a system that doesn't optimize for the client is something that they just tolerate and they wash over and justify in their own minds that uh, in many cases, well, I'm still doing better than I would be doing on my own, which is, which is fair. Um, but that doesn't make the relationship perfect. And it, it could be far more perfect uh, if that person were employed in an SEC-regulated business as opposed to a FINRA-regulated business. And that issue kept coming up over and over again in my prior career as a broker, and I just decided to make a break for it. 
Got it. And so you envisioned a, a world in which you could more fully and completely advocate for for clients. So that's right. Tell me a little bit more about that. Tell me more about what what you've developed and why. Um, well, so in the in the brokerage business, you know, it's um, the brokers make money in about nine or ten different ways. Uh, some of which shows up as a commission on the client statement. It could also show up as a spread that the client wouldn't be actually be able to see. So a spread would be where I buy or my, my firm buys a municipal bond for $99,000 and then resells it to a client for $100,000. That type of transaction is only allowed within a brokerage environment because there's technically a conflict of interest in hiding that fee from the client. In my world, the SEC-regulated world, I'm not allowed to mark that up. If I pay 99000 for it, I have to buy it for the client at 99000 I can charge the client a fee, but that fee is required to show on the client statement. Therefore, it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, for me to obfuscate what it is that I'm charging the client. So it's just a, I'm going to lay all my cards on the table and you lay all your cards on the table and let's interact together as opposed to the brokerage world, which wants all of that interaction to be completely dark and invisible to the client. And side deals get cut with other providers and mutual fund companies and brokerage firms have all kinds of side arrangements where there's money going back and forth between the two of them underneath where they slice and dice the client relationship into lots of profitable slivers. That sounds pretty crappy to me. Well, I don't want to make it sound like that, but I don't think that the problem is with the brokerage business per se. It's how we interact with them. And so, you know, if you go into a used car lot and you see a car that you like and you decide to buy it, I don't perceive that the used car lot has a whole lot of responsibility to you. They let you look at it. They let you drive it. You're free to take it and and have it evaluated by a professional if you want to. But when you drive it off the lot, you own it. And that's the way the brokerage business operates. And frankly, in many ways, I think it should be. You should not be able to return a security after the fact and get your money back. When you say, yes, I'll buy that security, baby, you own it. And whatever goes good with it, you own, and whatever goes bad with it, you own. And that type of interaction with a broker is really the correct way for a client to do transactional business. But if you're looking for advice, if you're looking for somebody to dig deep into your circumstances and then give you solutions, you probably don't want to be doing that on a used car lot. You want to hire somebody who knows everything about used cars and give them a complete open platform to go find exactly what it is that you're looking for, not just what they happen to have in inventory at that moment in time. So it's the way investors consume those services that is, in fact, the problem, not the services themselves. I think that that makes a lot of sense. How do you – and it seems like the, what, the relationship that you've just described – and I think that using the term advocacy is 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 exceptional and and really really um really appropriate. As more more platforms and tools become available to investors in the form of robo advisors or financial planning applications or budgeting applications, I how, do do you feel like it's it's your job to help sort of guide people through all of it and and put the whole thing together? 
No. And the reason why is that people don't want to learn how the watch is made. They want to be told how to tell time, and they want all of the mental anguish of thinking on a daily basis, what should I be doing differently? They want that responsibility to reside with a third party. One, they don't trust their own knowledge. Two, they don't they don't trust their own decision making. And three, the stakes are too high. And four, the system is far too complex for anyone to really fully understand who is not doing it full time. The tax implications, the way the hip bone is connected to the leg bone, people just don't understand it. And frankly, they don't want to understand it. They want to hire somebody who understands it, and they want it to be that person's problem. So there's more than one service that's being acquired. The first service is, yes, the daily minutia of managing money and making decisions, which is best done for a large group of people spearheaded by one person, and everybody divides the cost of that up, and that's how my business operates. But in the end, we just want relief. We want relief from the issues that plague us, from the uh, the little bird that sits on our shoulder that says, you know, if I would have, should have, could have, might have, uh, all of those uh, second thoughts, second guessing, people want relief from that. They just want to go on with their life and they want to hire somebody knowledgeable and trustworthy. And that's what my business is about. I like it. People want relief from all of it. It is for everything you just laid out. It's it's overly complex. It is intimidating. It is it is time consuming. It is all of these things and 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 why would this be any different than 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 legal work or exactly. getting my car done or whatever? Yep. And I, and I liken it to a CPA even more so. I I understand a lot about taxes. And with powerful software packages, I could probably do a pretty darn good job of doing my own tax return. My mind just does not like the minutia of getting all of the right boxes checked and the like. And so I pay relatively large CPA fees annually to make that somebody else's problem. And, uh, and I'm so much more comfortable doing so. And, and then I'll focus on the things that I understand and the things that I like to do. And, and that's just a cost of me doing business. So, and I think that that's the way most investors look at this same type of relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that makes sense. It is, it is, it, it is absolute value, right? It's cost. Is and in, in that CPA analogy, you surely wouldn't want your CPA to get a commission from the IRS. Mm to get you to pay more taxes. No, no, and that's, no, I would that's not want that. And that's the type of relationship <laughs> that exists in the brokerage world where that advisor is incentivized to drive your costs up because they get a percentage of that. Got it. Yeah, that, that, that's, that, that is a, a great metaphor or, or analogy for it. So as you are helping people to, to navigate through uh, all, all the decisions. I'm sure that you get questions all the time, particularly these days about cryptocurrency or meme stocks or whatever. How do you help coach people through shiny object syndrome? <laughs> you know, I use that term shiny objects from time to time. And I say the result is much like a fish, you know, fish should not chase shiny objects. Mm. <laughs> um, and so meme stocks and the like, you know, I think what people get distracted by in this shiny objects issue is 
they cannot discern the difference between a speculation and an investment. Mm -hmm. And because they are speculating, they actually think in many cases that they're just investing like everybody else does. And there's a, a bifurcation that I make, and I try to avoid all speculative investments. And what is a speculative investment, and what is the hallmark of it? It is an investment that you don't understand the underlying fundamentals of how it's priced. And the only reason you want to own it is because you think you can resell it to somebody else higher later. So would I consider raw land a speculation? Uh, no, because it has an intrinsic use in the future that can't be replaced by other things. And therefore, I can get a pretty rational view of what its intrinsic value is because it's not going anywhere. Uh, contrast that with Bitcoin, which I do view to be a speculation. I don't understand what you could use it for other than to trade with somebody else who you perceive would then believe they would give you more for it. So the raw land versus Bitcoin contrast is what I typically use to describe a, you know, a speculative investment. And you know, with regard to meme stocks like GameStop and other things where GameStop goes from $3 a share to $300 a share, uh, only because a bunch of people piled into it, not because the company was suddenly selling more video games. And so therefore the intrinsic value of GameStop would be questionable and it's the momentum of other people doing silly things with their money that I would not want to be involved in. It's a whole fascinating psychological thing to watch from uh, the outside. Um, and everything you just described does does make sense to me. Um, so, you know, and people said, geez, I really wish I would have bought some GameStop. And you're able to educate them and talk about the fundamentals of it. And I like the idea about, is this something that you'd want to own? And then at some point in the future, do you think that somebody would want to buy it from you? And if the answer is no, or I'm not sure, well, that's probably probably the answer to the question you're looking for. That's right. Nice. And in terms of, I guess, I, you know, I think that people are 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 looking for this 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 truth and 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 this clarity. How often are you talking about words like that with with clients? Daily. Uh, that's really what it's all about. Um, you know, clients call us all the time and they ask other types of questions of us that don't really have to do with investing. Uh, it's more about, you know, their tax return and how can I lower my tax bill and can you refer me to somebody? My CPA didn't handle this correctly or it's those connections that, that people are looking for and, uh, and they ask us questions and, and they have relatively little understanding of how important taxes are to the overall equation of compounding future return. They, many people view taxes as just a byproduct of making money, just like you know when you get your uh, W-2 at the end of the year and you have to pay tax on that. Well, there's a big difference between a W-2 and a 1099, and a 1099 uh, prints the money that you made optionally. And um, if your investment activity it goes down a path of transactional activity, you're going to turn your optional uh, tax payment into a reality. And we engage in a particular behavior pattern uh, that takes the current um, tax code and allows us to maneuver into the, into the legal zone of the tax code. We don't do anything that's gray area. We don't do anything that's even questionable. But the rules 
regarding capital gain activity and um, long-term capital gain activity and the tax rate on dividends is different than ordinary income and the value of a tax-free Roth IRA is different than the deferral inside of a regular IRA. You take all those and you, if you plotted them all out and you understood how they interacted with one another, you would find a clear path that would show you exactly the maneuvers you should be making to stay inside of that code and optimize the benefit in the end. And the brokerage world tends to dismiss all that. Uh, they don't pay hardly any attention to tax, uh, giving tax advice. And as a matter of fact, they will claim that they're not giving tax advice and nor do they want to give tax advice. Mm-hmm. But it, transactional methodologies also serve the needs of the brokerage firm, which has an ecosystem that they are trying to feed. And so they have an inherent bias towards not looking at after-tax return for clients because it doesn't see uh, serve their transactional methodologies for the most part. And so we kind of turn that model on its head. We look at the tax implications of everything that we do to try to give the client the best financial outcome. And that's kind of a rarity within the wealth management space. The other thing that makes us unique is that we use very few investment products. We don't buy mutual funds for the most part. We don't buy hedge funds. We don't buy any of those packaged products. We build the portfolios ourselves, not because our methodology of constructing those portfolios is mathematically superior. We do it because it eliminates costs. And just simply the elimination of a cost can enhance returns dramatically. People look at fees as a percentage of their portfolio when they should look at fees as a percentage of their return. And if you're paying a 1.5% management fee and you're operating in a stock market environment that produces 8 to 9% returns over time, you're giving up 15 to 16% of your return annually just to the fee. And so... Uh, we try to reduce that down and frankly by not choosing mutual funds as the typical methodology that wealth management firms would operate I can cut the clients fees in half just from that single decision right there Uh, so that's what makes us unique is building our portfolios in-house as opposed to using third parties to um, you know transfer our responsibility and uh, and have the clients pay for it and we try to avoid that well, that's a powerful thing right there. There's no doubt about that. And it's something that people just are not aware enough of. So so I appreciate you sharing that. Sure. Well, Gil, the people are ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? Um, I, that would be it right there. Pay attention to taxes, uh, hire an advocate, or learn the tax code yourself and figure out what that path is that would have an optimal outcome for you uh, because it can really have a dramatic impact. And when I say that it can frankly double returns if you pay close attention to it, I am not kidding. Uh, People can have two times the rate of return after tax if they pay attention to the tax code and understand how it impacts them with the decisions that they make for their investments. Well, I think that that is great stuff. That definitely gets Come on. Come on. Gil, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people learn more about you? How can they engage with you? My firm's name is Segment Wealth Management. Uh, The website is segmentwm.com. They can also go to gilbaumgarden.com. My first name, Gil, only has one L. A lot of people want to spell it with two. So uh, G-I-L-B-A-U-M-G-A-R-T-E-N, gilbaumgarden.com, has all kinds of information about my new book, Foolish, uh, as does my segment wm.com website. Well, they can also sign up for my blog. We write a 
bi-weekly blog uh, about various investment topics, and they can sign up for free on the segmentwm.com website. Perfect. Well, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Gil your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas, go to segmentwm.com and check out all the great resources. Sign up for the blog there. You go to gilbaumgarten.com, G-I-L-B-A-U-M-G-A-R-T-E-N.com, and also pick up a copy of his newest book, Foolish. Thank you again, Gil. Thanks, George. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight. We are all in this together.